This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... We're a small media company. We, we, we have to be engaged. And, and we really don't have the luxury of being able to sit back, to not be talking to our clients, to be meeting our readers, etc. Monocle's editor-in-chief and editor look at how news organisations can respond when there's only one news story. We'll assess official reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic with the virologist Chris Smith. We'll have our weekly reflection on what the week has taught us. And if confined to barracks, what works as comfort culture? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. It would be delightful if there was another story to lead today's programme, but there isn't. Global reaction to COVID-19 has been of such a scale that there's barely any other news to discuss. The virus, formally declared a pandemic this week, has inevitably launched a tsunami of conjecture, rumour and panic peddling, absolutely none of which you're going to hear on Monocle 24 as long as this thing lasts. I'm joined first of all by our friend Dr Chris Smith. Chris is a consultant virologist at Cambridge University and the host of the Naked Scientists podcast. Um, Chris, as we assess official reactions around the world, are we getting any closer to figuring out what actually works? It's a learning process, Andrew. There is no rule book for this. We've never been in this position. Pandemics happen on a roughly 30-year timescale. And that means, you know, in the last 10 years, we've had two of them with swine flu and now this one. But Each one is different. Each one's individual. You're dealing with different viruses, different viral behaviours and clinical manifestations and different groups of people who get infected and affected first. So there's no one gold standard way of doing this. So we're feeling our way. And part of that is to watch what other people do who are more sort of upstream in the process, see how they fare, see what they do that does appear to work, what doesn't appear to work, and then build on that knowledge to implement it here and now and at the moment the you know lots of people are saying well we should be closing things or uh, shut schools stop travel and so on a lot of this is not informed by evidence this is people it's it's informed by sort of well-meaning behavior but it's not evidence-based we'll come back to that shortly but i wanted to ask as we look around the world and see the different approaches and different results is the different results entirely due to the response to them or is it at all possible that this virus behaves in different ways in different environments i think both of those are true and that might seem a bit strange at first um, sort of listening but we know it's the same virus that's circulating and it's not dramatically mutating or something as it goes around the world, but it may be interacting with different groups of people in different ways. It may also be reacting and interacting with different geographies and different sociologies in different ways. China, for example, very authoritarian. They closed down lots of things, bore down on this really, really hard, and they, they are now declaring very low numbers. But look what it took to get there. And the big unknown is, as soon as they take the foot off this enormous break that they've applied, will the truck just start to roll down the hill again? We don't know. Which is why part of the sort of clarion calls for we should be shutting everything here in Britain and everyone saying, look what everyone else is doing, they closed everything down. We just don't know, actually, if that's the case. I was having a conversation this morning as well with a virologist and we were discussing why we might be seeing some of these differential behaviours. For instance, a very high rate of mortality in Italy at the moment, for example. Why might that be? Also, when we look at the graph of who's getting it and who appears to be getting it more severely, 
there's a shift towards older people who are more likely to be at risk and have uh, other, other more serious complications and younger people who appear to escape with very few symptoms even, let alone complications. Why might that be? And we were speculating that it could be to do with the fact that this new coronavirus is one of a family of coronaviruses and there are four coronaviruses that already circulate in humans and they cause seasonal outbreaks. Now, what we know about these coronaviruses is that they trigger you to make antibodies against various bits of the virus. And these antibodies can make the virus sticky. And sometimes what can happen is that you can... If you've had one coronavirus, the antibodies you make against it can stick to a different strain of coronavirus and not neutralise it, but just make it more attractive to your own immune system. So by catching one coronavirus, if you catch another one, you get a worse infection. And perhaps, and this is pure speculation on the part of the virologist I was talking to, but it might be that in certain clusters, China, we know 30 to 60% of people have had other coronavirus infections. Perhaps northern Italy, this might also be happening. There may have been outbreaks of, of other coronaviruses, quite trivially, but in the recent past, and it's primed the population to be at slightly higher risk in that area. Children, on the other hand, who are not old enough yet to have encountered these naturally circulating coronaviruses may not have had that response and therefore they might be less vulnerable for that reason. So at the moment, we're just trying to find out, but I think there's a multitude of reasons why we're seeing the, the different virological behaviours that we're seeing. It's a difficult story to know where to start with because, as you have also just been outlining, it is a, a huge thing with potentially enormous consequences beyond the thing itself. I don't like to leave listeners with a, a complete sense of, of despondency uh, and hopelessness. So where we are right now, which is Friday the 13th of March, any given individual listening to this, what can they actually do, which is either potentially preventive or constructive? Well, at the moment, one should remember that the number of cases in society is low. Compared with other countries, we've had very few people who have unfortunately died. So that's reassuring up to a point. And we've got relatively low circulation at the moment. That doesn't mean that's not going to change. It is going to change. And we are going to see more of, of these cases. But be reassured that 99% of people who catch this are actually going to recover. That's the first point. And 80% of people who catch this are going to have very trivial symptoms, if any. So that should reassure a lot of people straight away that actually um, just by carrying on with their daily life, everything's going to be okay. In terms of those people who do have more of a, a risk, this is more tricky. But the fact that we know that we face this challenge means that We've been scratching our heads in our hospital and, and I guarantee pretty much everybody across the country who's involved in the delivery of healthcare and so on to have a plan in place. So we have got plans in place and together with the government's plan, which is to try to smooth out this curve, spread the number of cases over the longest time possible. And these are cases who need healthcare intervention specifically. What we're doing is making the resources we do have better able to cope. The, you know, it, it is going to be a rocky ride. I can't pretend that. I'm pretty sure there will be quite a lot of cases and that people are going to have problems. But we're doing our best to minimise them. And so I, I think people should be reassured there are some very bright people. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not one of them. There are some really, really bright people who are very exercised, working very hard behind the scenes to make sure that we've got a plan in place for this. Chris Smith, thank you for joining us. 
You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. The COVID-19 pandemic presents news organisations with an obvious challenge. It is a massive and important story. It also presents news organisations with a less obvious challenge, how to keep a massive and important story from absolutely overwhelming the output and how to keep some kind of focus on what else is going on. Earlier, Monocle 24's Georgina Godwin discussed the nature of the problem and potential solutions with Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé, and editor, Andrew Tuck. Well, I think the first tip would be probably, and Andrew and I, we haven't even had an active discussion about this, we shouldn't have a live news ticker. As we saw yesterday, the WHO issued a statement talking about mental health, the mental health risks around coronavirus. And one of the first points of recommendation was, if you're a little bit stressed, if you have anxiety, don't look at the news. And we are in this very strange cycle. The, the rise of, of the news ticker is very much part of the news landscape, I think is something which really stresses people out. I mean, Andrew, we've been talking a lot about this over the last two weeks, really. It feels a really strange world when people react to every new number. And we should think about that because, you know, the numbers are going to go up. It, we know that there's going to be a curve up and a curve down. We don't know exactly the timing of it. And we don't know the severity of the numbers, but we know those numbers are going to go up. So at the moment now, there's this release here in the UK of the additional numbers of people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And of course, they go up. And so there's an anxiety moment every afternoon. And then there's a reaction to that number. And is it more or less than the day before? And then we see it for every other country. We know that we're going through a viral infection that's going to be reasonably long-lasting if they suppress it. So we just have to get used to those numbers. And the other strange thing I find is all these other stories are going on in the world, and they're all kind of somehow tagged on to this. It's kind of everything is seen through the eyes of this one event. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tyler, stories like this, though, do need coverage. So how do we decide how much? Well, I think we're doing it every day. I mean, you, of course, are part of the morning story lineup and we're planning the program. And I think, of course... And you can go to those outlets. I mean, those that have the live ticker, we don't have one. We have to dip in and dip out of it. But there is a bigger global story to be told here. We have to be covering the international landscape around the clock as we do. But there needs to be a sense of balance and perspective. And and we've been talking about a strange thing that's happened in, in the newsroom. And by newsroom, Georgina, I'm talking about, you know, perhaps the big global newsrooms of, of course, the big global media brands, where there is almost a, a different approach to, of course, what passes for news, maybe a different different group of people who maybe have a different skill set who are manning news desks today. And that's why so many things are so out of kilter and a lot of things out of, you know, particularly sort of bad taste as well. So on one side, you have graphs and you look at maybe at at the number of deaths in Italy. And then the next thing, you've got some ridiculous story. There's a lot of very strange adjacencies. And as Andrew's saying, just because a pop concert got canceled, then you have someone's very sad story about the death of their father right next door. And then there's this very sort of disjointed stream that exists. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the use of language and, and numbers has been, it's been woeful. And we should go back to some of these people when this is all over and ask them what the hell they were up to. Because here in the UK, you read you know, the newspapers and when you hear about planning that's being done by the government, it's called doomsday planning. It's, it's not doomsday. Everything is talked about in notions of a battle, a war raging. 
It's not a war. This is very different to a war. We see these two numbers every day which infuriate me, which is the number of people who have COVID-19 and then the number of people who have died. The two numbers they don't give in between that are the number of people who have already fully recovered and are back at work and getting on with their lives and, and it hasn't had an impact on them, and the number of cases which are mild. And once you take those two numbers out then it suddenly becomes a really different story. But those numbers are just never reported on a daily basis. Yeah, and Georgina, you were just asking about also how do we cover the story. If we look at what is Monocle's view been, I think it's, and, and certainly in our own version of, of being out there every day, aside from being on the airwaves, you know, we've had two great stories from James Chambers, who is our bureau chief in Hong Kong. And over the weekend, he really talked about the sun coming out and Hong Kong getting back out there, people going to the beach. Hong Kong has, we hope, has been through the worst of it and has been in lockdown mode. And suddenly, yeah, the weather improves and, and people are out there. He had a great piece yesterday as well, just talking about you know sport venues reopening and, and his own participation. And those are the stories we're actually missing in all of this. There's a cycle going around the world and things are improving in pockets as well. Mm. I mean, is there a business risk, though, for media outlets who don't go with the Zeit Well, look, we are reporting it every single day. I've just been proofing pages and and looking at stories that will reflect what's happening. But Monocle has always been engaged in the world and we we don't believe that you should retreat. We don't believe that you should stop going to your neighbourhood restaurant that needs you and needs your money at this time. We believe that all of those things you have to be engaged with. We're not going to retreat from the story, but have something to say, put it in some really deep context. And Tyler said, you know, it's really interesting how all the media outlets were focused on China and Hong Kong, and there was a story over there, and we, we needn't worry about it. Now it's come here, we're in panic mode, but it's a story that's going to pass, and we have to get people prepared for what happens in six months' time when your your company has been a bit stressed and strained by this. What's your bounce-back strategy? How are you going to re-engage with customers and clients who you've ignored for six months? Because here in London, we're seeing companies, you, know, you feel it on the street, it's quieter. I was speaking to somebody the other day, they've been told to work from home. But we're way off the situation of Italy here in the UK at the moment. What happens if they work from home for six months and all of their colleagues, their their company is literally shut? What happens in six months' time? And I think for us, we're trying to be calm and sensible and say, let's follow the health advice. Let's listen to what those in authority are telling us and, and know but let's take everything calmly and work our way through this. Now, I know that you have a flight to catch, so we've got to let you go. But how do you feel about that, about airports and about travel? Well, I've been out in the world. We weren't corresponding last week, but I was in Japan last week. I was in Helsinki last week. I was in, in Paris at the start of the week because we're a small media company. You know, we, we have to be out there. No one is telling me not to get on a plane. You know, of course, I've been through lots of Hartman sterilium uh, hand sanitizers. And, you know, and, but in a way, I'm traveling a lot. I, I sort of do a lot of that anyway. It's just, it's a matter of course if you're out there in the world. But I think we, well, not think we have to be engaged. And, and we really don't have the luxury of being able to sit back, to not be talking to our clients, to be meeting our readers, etc. Now, some might obviously say they know we're all agents and, and, and of course, carrying this virus around the world. Well, so far, hopefully not. But I, I can't think of another way at the moment, given, of course, the things that are happening. Cancellation in advertising, cancellation of, of major events. I mean, we have written off a lot of money in this company over the last few weeks because of in one way, I would say, you could say it's a panic sell-off a little bit, Georgina, that in a panic sell-off of people saying, look, you know, where, where can we cut marketing budgets, all of these types of things. So there's that. And then at the same time, it's so important, actually, when you go, you enter into a lobby at, at a 
you know, whether it's at a major Japanese company or in Paris. Well, people are really thrilled to see you at the moment. And I don't want to say that we're we're getting an edge on people, but listen, we have to be out selling our inventory of, of advertising and then programs and the wares we have to offer. Monocle will carry on. Monocle carry on. And as you said, you know, at heart, we're all journalists and you don't run away from the story. You go to the story and you report it. We did that after the terrible tragedies in Japan. We've done that after many, many difficult incidents to do with terrorism. We've gone to the story, we've reported it, and we've met the people that we know there. I think just going back to what Andrew was saying at the start, I'm very curious to see when we look forward, when we look ahead, and when we have the moment, the luxury to look back, what is that mop-up going to be? And I think there has to be a real review of, of course, how the media responded, how corporations responded, the level of panic that was induced, and I think also just the tone and language. I mean, it was so odd last weekend in the UK reading ministers offering condolences to people who had died. In one way, understandable. What about then the person who died in a car accident or someone who died of leukemia that weekend? You know, we can't ignore these things. So there needs to be a level of of measure. Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, and our editor, Andrew Tuck, talking to Georgina Godwin. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It's time now for our weekly reflection on how much the wiser we are for the last seven days. We learned this week that nobody seems too clear on what the correct reaction to a global health emergency actually is. At one extreme, Italy and Denmark and Ireland more or less shut. At the other, the President of the United States at first insisted that none of this was actually happening, or if it was, that it wasn't that big a deal. Spoke to the White House doctor. He said he sees no reason to do it. There's no symptoms, no anything. Later in the week, Donald Trump decided it was a big enough deal to ban travel to the US from European countries inside the Schengen area, but not outside it, which exempts, most obviously, Ireland and the UK. These are, of course, both largely English-speaking countries and also both hosts of Trump golf courses. So we learned that if there is a crisis mighty enough to elevate President Trump above petty xenophobia and venal grifting, this is not it. It's almost reassuring. We learned, taking a broader view, that the spectrum of responses to COVID-19 contains multitudes, which often conformed to national stereotype. As we go to air, at least, the UK's government is going long on keeping calm and carrying on, Prime Minister Boris Johnson deferring conspicuously, and it can only be hoped rightly, to the expertise of the UK's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr Jenny Harries. In this country, we have expert modellers looking at what we think will happen with the virus, um, and we've looked at what sorts of interventions might help manage this as we go forward, push the peak of the epidemic forward. Um, In In Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel calmly and unfussily related the facts as she understood them. 
Wenn wir, Sie wissen, dass der Bundesgesundheitsminister Sie auch regelmäßig jetzt mit diesen Wissenschaftlern gemeinsam informiert und Sie werden an der... The irrepressibly mercantile state of New York, where Manhattan souvenir stalls were hawking Osama bin Laden toilet roll by about dinner time on September 12, 2001, announced that it was getting into the hand sanitizer business. State Governor Andrew Cuomo announced the exciting new product at a press conference slash infomercial. This is a superior product to products now on the market. This is 75% alcohol. It also has a, comes in a variety of sizes. It has a very nice floral bouquet. France, in keeping with its tradition for reacting to anything in the most French way possible, restricted gatherings of more than a thousand people, but allowed an exception for demonstrations. It will take more than uppity microbes to deter the French from expressing irritation by flinging cafe tables at the gendarmes. Are you all coming from? From Smurfland, where we Are you talking just like us? And elsewhere in France, specifically in Landenau, in Brittany, a Smurf festival went ahead, attended by three and a half thousand people dressed as white-capped blue toadstool-dwelling gnomes. We must not stop living, declared the town's mayor. But is that living? Is it? Really? And we learned that Saudi Arabia was not about to miss this opportunity to caricature itself. Saudi state oil firm Aramco apologised after footage went viral, we may need a new expression for this, of one of the company's migrant workers having been made to dress up as a hand sanitizer dispenser. We also learned that George Orwell's famous summation of totalitarian arithmetic may require updating. Two plus two does not, it turns out, equal five. Two plus two, at least when they are the two lots of two terms served by President Vladimir Putin, actually equals zero. On Wednesday, Russia's parliament passed a bill which would allow President Putin to sidestep term limits by officially resetting the number of stints behind the big desk he has already done, those previously alluded to two lots of two, from four to none. Here's Mark Galliotti on Wednesday's briefing. What this simply means is that although the, the, the Russian constitution will say that no one can stand for more than two terms as president, not even just two consecutive terms, what they will say is, but of course the clock gets reset to zero when we change the constitution. The necessary amendment was moved by a Duma deputy from Yaroslavl Oblast, one Valentina Tereshkova. If her name sounds familiar, so it should. On June 16, 1963, Lieutenant Tereshkova of the Soviet Air Force, as she then was, took off aboard Vostok 6 to become the first woman in space. Can I get a grinding of gears sound effect here? Because moving from the first woman in space to the second female US vice presidential candidate from a major American party, we learned that Sarah Palin has returned to public view, which you'll all agree is just what the world needed at this point. It could have been worse. She wasn't running for public office. Instead, the former governor of Alaska was appearing on a televised talent quest dressed as a pink and purple bear, performing Sir Mixalot's immortal appreciation of the fuller figured woman. Can I be your hype man? 
Palin, it might be charitably observed, proved a better rapper than she did a running mate. And in fairness, if we've learned anything, not just this week, but in these last three years or so, it's infinitely preferable that nitwitted politicians progress to becoming terrible TV entertainers rather than the other way around. Finally, on today's House View, for obvious reasons, it is likely that at least some listeners will be anticipating or are already embarked upon a period of not getting out much. Not that we would wish to dissuade anybody from seizing this opportunity to write their own unreadable novel or score-settling memoir or record their own album of vindictive ballads about someone who'll be sorry when they're famous, but there might actually be a chance here to embrace and or revisit some comforting culture created by others. here to discuss some options are Monocle 24's Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machilari, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, Fernando, we were talking about this earlier. In fact, I think it's the reason we're doing this item. Um, you made a poor choice earlier this week in this I, respect. Actually, this week was full of poor, cho- poor choices, I have to say. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me on Monday. I thought oh, maybe I should watch Contagion. Everybody's talking about directed by Steven Soderbergh. No, 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 Fernando, everybody's talking <laughs> about an actual Contagion, yes, exactly. not about the film Contagion. Do, do you see the difference here? I got things confused and I have to say I was traumatized because the film is fairly <laughs> realistic. Um, and I had insomnia in the in the coming days. Probably I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight as well. And, and, and I have to say the day before, you know which other film I saw? Hellraiser, the classic uh, British horror, but again, very depressing. So after Contagion, I said to myself, listen, Fernando, it's not time for horror. It's not time for (laughs) realistic dramas by Steven Soderbergh. I need to watch lighter things, you know, and and that's what I said to myself. Contagion traumatized me. So I very much look forward to what my colleagues Ogan Page have to recommend me because (laughs) Contagion, please. Uh, Augustine, what's your approach at times of trouble? Do you try to seek out something distracting or or, or lighthearted or do you just embrace the horror? I'm a big horror film fan. <laughs> I actually had already seen Contagion and have kind of been... Well, and, di- and dismissed it as a, a lightweight foible. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it. I think it's really good. I mean, I do think it's worth watching. Now might not be the time. And I do have a list of... <laughs> the last six months have actually been, like, unusually culturally rich, in my opinion. Um, I can offer some recommendations for anyone who's kind of finds themselves with a few afternoons to get through shortly. Uh, the horror films, though... Yeah, I, I've become conscious that a lot of the fear that I've been ingesting and kind of just dismissing as 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 pointless has kind of been bubbling up and uh, sort of rearing its ugly head as things have got a bit more sort of worrisome, really. So horror film fans, watch out. It's all still in there. It's just in the subconscious and uh, and all it needs is a little nudge and out it'll come. Uh, Paige, do you, do you have an established regime of comfort viewing or listening or reading to which you turn at times of trouble? So I was thinking about what I would do if I had to self-isolate for a, a couple of days, a couple of weeks. There's one in Japanese uh, called Sundoku, which is the art of acquiring reading materials and never actually reading them (laughs) and um, that is something I'm definitely criminal of Uh, particularly here we get sent so many fantastic books and and interview so many authors and you're kind of speed reading them and you don't really get to enjoy them so I think I would there's about 20 books I think in my room that I have not read Um, so I think I would start that most of them are about Putin 
I think um, <laughs> most people in this office get sent a Putin book and just put it on my desk. So I've got quite the collection. I did that now. quite a few times. Yeah, <laughs> he's definitely criminal. Th- that, that is that is possibly an entirely separate item. The the enormous boon he has been to nonfiction publishing. It, it is pretty much a genre. Yeah, 100%. But, but Paige, we, we do speak to you fairly frequently as our resident Russ of file. Mm-hmm. If somebody was going to think, I'm never going to get a better chance to crack one of those big Russian doorstoppers, do you have either a particular favourite or one you would recommend people ease themselves in with? Sort of depends what, what you like. Of course, you could try War and Peace. It is a fantastic book. Um, you can kind of skip, oh, come on. You, you can uh, skip the war bits if you want. There's you a little can, bit of can, military strategy in there. You can treat yourself some... right here to saying, of course, it loses something if it's not in the original Russian. Uh, no, I, I must say, I haven't <laughs> attempted them in, in, the, in the OG uh, form, unfortunately. But yeah, War and Peace. But if that's looking a bit too tricky, maybe Anna Karenina. I've never read any Dostoevsky. I have to put my hands up here. So maybe that is what I would do. In fact, one of those books sitting in my my room is Brothers Karamazov, so maybe I would finally get a few few hours to crack into that. A note for our listeners, Paige was literally putting her hands up as she said that. Um, Fernando, have you thought of any perhaps more, uh, I don't know, distracting or cheerful things that you might get around to? If You're not going to give Contagion another go, presumably. Absolutely not. Actually, I'm going for the completely opposite spectrum. I think I'm going for dating reality shows. They're so easy to watch. And you know that we have plenty of options. Five guys a week from Channel 4. Good it's stuff. Amazing. <laughs> Love is blind. You know, you don't need to think. You know, you're just judging people that you don't know. Perfect. I, I'm, I'm, I'm judging from your facial expression, Augustine, that this is, <laughs> this is not something that you'll be buying into yourself. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, no. Will you? No, well, <laughs> except to the point that they're the kind of programs that you might end up watching and thinking, pandemic, all bad, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think if you go on Netflix, everyone is exhausted now. The English language films, um, most of the ones made by Netflix are a bit iffy. All the films are kind of a bit old. You get the sense of it. But actually, if you're willing to read some subtitles, which kind of is both edifying and sort of horizon expanding, there's loads of really great stuff on there. You just have to scratch a little bit. So there's this film called The Wailing. Fernando, maybe don't watch it at the moment. It is quite spooky. Korean, one of the great films of the last 10 years. Green Frontier, a series that I've just discovered. It came out in the summer. It's like a Colombian answer to True Detective. Really fun, really exciting, set in the jungle, very atmospheric, good escapist stuff. Elsewhere streaming services, you know, Portrait of a Lady on Fire for listeners in the UK is streaming on Curzon, so you can watch that without going to the cinema. Uncut Gems, again, it's been really, really well received in the studios. A bit of a heart attack there. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it'll wake you up, but it's it's essential uh, watching. And then there's loads of literature too. Ben Lerner, The Topeka School came out at the end of last year. That's great. Um, I think there's lots and lots to catch up on. Uh, some recommendations there. We may return to this theme in ensuing weeks, but I think that gives everybody enough to be going on with for the moment. Augusta Machelari, Paige Reynolds, Fernando Augusta Pacheco, thank you all for joining us. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Jack Jewers. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu. Marcus Hippie taking a look this week at Irish cooking. Monocle's House View returns at 9am tomorrow morning, London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening.